Chapter 16 of A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Craig Whitehorn A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille Chapter 16 The Kosekin these people call themselves the Kosekin. Their chief characteristic, or at least their most prominent one, is their love of darkness, which perhaps is due to their habit of dwelling in caves. Another feeling equally strong and perhaps connected with this is their love of death and dislike of life. This is visible in many ways and affects all their character. It leads to a passionate self-denial, an incessant effort to benefit others at their own expense. Each one hates life and longs for death. He, therefore, hates riches and all things that are associated with life. Among the Kosekin, everyone makes perpetual efforts to serve others, which, however, are perpetually baffled by the unselfishness of these others. People thus spend years in trying to overreach one another, so as to make others richer than themselves. In a race, each one tries to keep behind, but as this leads to confusion, there is then a universal effort for each one to be first, so as to put his neighbor in the honorable position of the rear. It is the same way in a hunt. Each one presses forward, so as to honor his companion by leaving him behind. Instead of injuring, everyone tries to benefit his neighbor. When one has been benefited by another, he is filled with a passion which may be called Kosekin revenge, namely a sleepless and vehement desire to bestow some adequate and corresponding benefit on the other. Feuds are thus kept up among families and wars among nations, for no one is willing to accept from another any kindness, any gift, or any honor, and all are continually on the watch to prevent themselves from being overreached in this way. Those who are less watchful than others are overwhelmed with gifts by designing men who wish to attain to the pauper class. The position of Alma and myself illustrates this. Our ignorance of the blessings and honors of poverty led us to receive whatever was offered us. Taking advantage of our innocence and ignorance, the whole city thereupon proceeded to bestow their property upon us, and all became paupers through our fortunate arrival. No one ever injures another unless by accident, and when this occurs it affords the highest joy to the injured party. He has now a claim on the injurer. He gets him into his power, is able to confer benefits on him, and force upon him all that he wishes. The unhappy injurer, thus punished by the reception of wealth, finds himself helpless, and where the injury is great, the injured man may bestow upon the other all his wealth and attain to the envied condition of a pauper. Among the Kosekin, the sick are objects of the highest regard. All classes vie with one another in their attentions. The rich send their luxuries. The paupers, however, not having anything to give, go themselves and wait on them and nurse them. For this there is no help, and the rich grumble, but can do nothing. The sick are thus sought out incessantly, and most carefully tended. When they die, there is great rejoicing, since death is a blessing. But the nurses labor hard to preserve them in life so as to prolong the enjoyment of the high privilege of nursing. Of all sick, the incurable are most honored, since they require nursing always. Children also are highly honored and esteemed, and the age, too, since both classes require the care of others and must be the recipients of favors which all are anxious to bestow. 
Those who suffer from contagious diseases are more sought after than any other class, for in waiting on these there is the chance of gaining the blessing of death. Indeed, in these cases much trouble is usually experienced from the rush of those who insist on offering their services. For it must never be forgotten that the Kosekin love death as we love life, and this accounts for all those ceremonies which to me were so abhorrent, especially the scenes of the Mistakosek. To them, a dead human body is no more than the dead body of a bird. There is no awe felt, no sense of sanctity, of superstitious horror. And so I learned, with a shudder, that the hate of life is a far worse thing than the fear of death. This desire for death is, then, a master passion, and is the key to all their words and acts. They rejoice over the death of friends, since those friends have gained the greatest of blessings. They rejoice also at the birth of children, since those who are born will one day gain the bliss of death. For a couple to fall in love is the signal for mutual self-surrender. Each insists on giving up the loved one, and the more passionate the love is, the more eager is the desire to have the loved one married to someone else. Lovers have died broken-hearted from being compelled to marry one another. Poets here among the Kosekins celebrate unhappy love which has met with this end. These poets also celebrate defeats instead of victories, since it is considered glorious for one nation to sacrifice itself to another. But to this there are important limitations, as we shall see. Poets also celebrate street sweepers, scavengers, lamplighters, laborers, and above all, paupers, and pass by as unworthy of notice the authors, Meleks, and Cohens of the land. The paupers here form the most honorable class. Next to these are the laborers. These have strikes with us, but it is always for harder work, longer hours, or smaller pay. The contest between capital and labor rages, but the conditions are reversed, for the grumbling capitalist complains that the laborer will not take as much pay as he ought to, while the laborer thinks the capitalist too persistent in his efforts to force money upon him. Here among the Kosekin, the wealthy class forms the mass of the people, while the aristocratic few consist of the paupers. These are greatly envied by the others, and have many advantages. The cares and burdens of wealth, as well as wealth itself, are here considered a curse, and from all these the paupers are exempt. There is a perpetual effort on the part of the wealthy to induce the paupers to accept gifts, just as among us the poor try to rob the rich. Among the wealthy there is a great and incessant murmur at the obstinacy of the paupers. Secret movements are sometimes set on foot, which aim at the redistribution of property and a leveling of all classes, so as to reduce the haughty paupers to the same condition as the mass of the nation. More than once there has been a violent attempt at a revolution, so as to force wealth on the paupers, but as a general thing these movements have been put down and their leaders severely punished. The paupers have shown no mercy in their hour of triumph. They have not conceded one jot to the public demand, and the unhappy conspirators have been condemned to increase wealth and luxury, while the leaders have been made Meleks and Cohens. Thus there are among the Kosekin the unfortunate many who are cursed with wealth, and the fortunate few who are blessed with poverty. These walk while the others ride, and from their squalid huts look proudly and contemptuously upon the palaces of their unfortunate fellow countrymen. The love of death leads to perpetual efforts on the part of each to lay down his life for another. This is a grave difficulty in hunts and battles. Confined prisoners dare not fly, for in such an event the guards kill themselves. 
This leads to fresh rigors in the captivity of the prisoners in case of their recapture, for they are overwhelmed with fresh luxuries and increased splendors. Finally, if a prisoner persists and is recaptured, he is solemnly put to death, not, as with us, by way of severity, but as the last and greatest honor. Here extremes meet. The death, whether for honor or dishonor, is all the same, death, and is reserved for desperate cases. But among the Kosekin, this lofty destiny is somewhat embittered by the agonizing thought on the part of the prisoner, who thus gains it, that his wretched family must be doomed, not, as with us, to poverty and want, but on the contrary, to boundless wealth and splendor. Among so strange a people, it seems singular to me what offenses could possibly be committed which could be regarded and punished as crimes. These, however, I soon found out. Instead of robbers, the Kosekin punish the secret bestowers of their wealth on others. This is regarded as a very grave offense. Analogous to our crime of piracy is the forcible arrest of ships at sea and the transfer to them of valuables. Sometimes the Kosekin pirates give themselves up as slaves. Kidnapping, assault, highway robbery, and crimes of violence have their parallel here in cases where a strong man, meeting a weaker, forces himself upon him as his slave or compels him to take his purse. If the weaker refuse, the assailant threatens to kill himself, which act would lay the other under obligations to receive punishment from the state in the shape of gifts and honors, or at least subject him to unpleasant inquiries. Murder has its counterpart among the Kosekin in cases where one man meets another, forces money on him, and kills himself. Forgery occurs where one uses another's name so as to confer money on him. There are many other crimes, all of which are severely punished. The worse the offense is, the better is the offender treated. Among the Kosekin, capital punishment is imprisonment amid the greatest splendor, where the prisoner is treated like a king and has many palaces and great retinues. For that which we consider the highest they regard as the lowest, and with them the chief post of honor is what we would call the lowest menial office. Of course, among such a people, any suffering from want is unknown, except when it is voluntary. The pauper class, with all their great privileges, have this restriction that they are forced to receive enough for food and clothing. Some, indeed, manage by living in out-of-the-way places to deprive themselves of these and have been known to die of starvation, but this is regarded as dishonorable, as taking an undue advantage of a great position, and where it can be proved, the children and relatives of the offender are severely punished according to the Kosekin fashion. State politics here move, like individual affairs, upon the great principle of contempt for earthly things. The state is willing to destroy itself for the good of other states, but as other states are in the same position, nothing can result. In times of war, the object of each army is to honor the other and benefit it by giving it the glory of defeat. The contest is thus most fierce. The Kosekin, through their passionate love of death, are terrible in battle, and when they are also animated by the desire to confer glory on their enemies by defeating them, they generally succeed in their aim. This makes them almost always victorious, and when they are not so, not a soul returns alive. Their state of mind is peculiar. If they are defeated, they rejoice, since defeat is their chief glory. But if they are victorious, they rejoice still more in the benevolent thought that they have conferred upon the enemy the joy, the glory, and the honor of defeat. Here all shrink from governing others. The highest wish of each is to serve. The Meleks and Cohens, 
whom I at first considered the highest, are really the lowest orders. Next to these come the authors, then the merchants, then farmers, then artisans, then laborers, and finally the highest rank is reached in the paupers. Happy the aristocratic, the haughty, the envied paupers. The same thing is seen in their armies. The privates here are highest in rank, and the officers come next in different graduations. These officers, however, have the command and the charge of affairs as with us. Yet this is consistent with their position, for here to obey is considered nobler than to command. In the fleet, the rowers are the highest class. Next come the fighting men, and the lowest of all are the officers. War arises from motives as peculiar as those which give rise to private feuds, as, for instance, where one nation tries to force a province upon another, where they try to make each other greater, where they try to benefit unduly each other's commerce, where one may have a smaller fleet or army than has been agreed upon, or where an ambassador has been presented with gifts or received too great honor or attention. In such a country as this, where riches are disliked and despised, I could not imagine how people could be induced to engage in trade. This, however, was soon explained. The laborers and artisans have to perform their daily work so as to enable the community to live and move and have its being. Their impelling motive is the high one of benefiting others most directly. They refuse anything but the very smallest pay, and insist on giving for this the utmost possible labor. Tradesmen also have to supply the community with articles of all sorts. Merchants have to sail their ships to the same end, all being animated by the desire of affecting the good of others. Each one tries not to make money, but to lose it. But as the competition is sharp and universal, this is difficult, and the larger portion are unsuccessful. The purchasers are eager to pay as much as possible, and the merchants and traders grow rich in spite of their utmost endeavors. The wealthy classes go into business so as to lose money, but in this they seldom succeed. It has been calculated that only 2% in every community succeed in reaching the pauper class. The tendency is for all the labors of the working class to be ultimately turned upon the unfortunate wealthy class. The workmen, being the creators of wealth and refusing to take adequate pay, cause a final accumulation of the wealth of the community in the hands of the mass of the non-producers, who thus are fixed in their unhappy position and can hope for no escape except by death. The farmers till the ground, the fishermen fish, the laborers toil, and the wealth thus created is pushed from these incessantly till it all falls upon the lowest class, namely the rich, including Athons, Meleks, and Cohens. It is a burden that is often too heavy to be borne, but there is no help for it, and the better-minded seek to cultivate resignation. Women and men are in every respect absolutely equal, holding precisely the same offices and doing the same work. In general, however, it is observed that women are a little less fond of death than men, and a little less unwilling to receive gifts. For this reason, they are very numerous among the wealthy class, and abound in the offices of administration. Women serve in the army and navy as well as men, and from their lack of ambition or energetic perseverance, they are usually relegated to the lower ranks, such as officers and generals. To my mind, it seemed as though the women were in all the offices of honor and dignity, but in reality, it was the very opposite. The same is true in the family. The husbands insist on giving everything to the wives and doing everything for them. 
The wives are therefore universally the rulers of the household, while the husbands live in apparently subordinate, but to the Kosekin, a more honorable position. As to the religion of the Kosekin, I could make nothing of it. They believe that after death they go to what they call the world of darkness. The death they long for leads to the darkness that they love, and the death and the darkness are eternal. Still, they persist in saying that the death and the darkness together form a state of bliss. They are eloquent about the happiness that awaits them there in the sunless land, the world of darkness. But for my own part, it always seemed to me a state of nothingness. End of chapter 16 Recording by Craig Whitehorn, Atlanta, Georgia, April 8, 2008